Open your Bibles, please, to Revelation in chapter 3. Here's a church that is besieged, and it takes its place, this little church in Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, not the one you know on the East Coast, uh, but this, if you look on the map in the back of your Bible, you'll find it in the circle of seven churches. It's the one that's furthest to the east. And let me say just a few things about it. No, it's not there, but it'd be quite a location. It? But uh, this church, well, let's say something about the the, the area and the city, the geography. It's about 25, 30 miles southeast of Sardis in a valley called Kogamas. It's a very fertile valley. Uh, Philadelphia, the city, was built or began about 190 B.C. And it's right on a trade route. So it was um, in, a, in a good spot for commerce, travel, and it uh, had located in a very fertile valley, is it right on, actually on the mouth, uh, opening up into a valley. And it was uh, uh, known for its uh, grapes and wine production. Uh, Dionysius was the god of this city. And it was founded by a man by the name of Attalus, Attalus II Philadelphus. Uh, interesting how the name came to be, the city came to be named as it was. He was the king of Pergamum, Attalus was. And he had a brother, Umenes. And they had a reputation for being really tight brothers. And Attalus loved his brother deeply. So much so that when he founded this city, and it was actually built to, among other things, to be kind of a Hellenistic outpost city, little mini-civilization to take Hellenistic civilization further to the east, back on toward pushing out in the direction of the Persian Empire. And he named the city after his brother because he wanted it to be the man who loved his brother is the name of Phila, Philos and Adelphos, the man who loved his brother. So there is the original Philadelphia, the city, uh, as we know, in, up in the East Coast, the city of brotherly, as I ask our friend here tonight, who really is a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. They played today? Did they win? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. They play tonight. All right. In Philadelphia or Dallas? Okay. I mean, this doesn't make any difference, but uh, I'm interested. Um, so, uh, the city of brotherly love, as it has been effectually known, but by some of its more uh, outspoken critics, the city of brotherly shove. <laughs> it can be that. But back to the passage, and uh, the city sits on an earthquake of a fault line, and therefore is really susceptible to earthquakes. And it had a significant uh, 
Jewish synagogue located in this city. That's going to come up here in the passage. And I, th- I think I'll just reserve my comments uh, about that then. All right, without getting into any further geography, its location and all, but here's see, probably when Paul went through this area, you know, his missionary travels took him, this uh, consummate apostle, preacher, uh, pioneer missionary, theologian, adventurer, all of this wrapped into one package. He went through uh, western Turkey. I traveled, Beth and I traveled through that area back in, the, in 1999 and went to the city of uh, what is today, I've forgotten the name for it, it's not Philadelphia, but um, went to the, uh, to the site of what was left of the ancient city of Philadelphia, and really it's not much. <laughs> and this city and that church um, are then the recipients of this letter. Think of personal letter from Jesus Christ to these churches. Personal letters. Here's one to Philadelphia. It stands out in that this city, this church, Philadelphia, and Smyrna are the only two where there's no criticism offered. Uh, fishing for a little bit of significance to that, maybe this church is, is noted, was noted for its rather insignificant size and clout. It was not a, shall I say, a kind of a muscular church in the sense that it had a lot of influence in the area. And Smyrna was a definitely a persecuted church, endured a lot. So these two churches, much less wealthy and prominent than the other five, are, there's no criticism. I'm not going to press that any further. Not that there probably weren't things that needed to be taken care of. But here's this church. Now, I'd like to do, just take two steps, it's like, if, if I may liken it to this, opening up an envelope. It is a letter. So I'm just going to, I don't know how you open letters, but I use, my, I've had letter openers through the years, but I still, this is the best thing, the index finger. And um, I want to open the letter up with two movements here. First of all, I'm, these are both, one's a theological statement, and the other is theological, but it's relating particularly to verse 7. But first of all, let me just give you the, the broader the, the statement. That believers that remain true to their confession of Christ will receive special honors. I've emphasized this because the texts do. I understand an overcomer here is referring to believers. Believers who overcome... And there are rewards that come as a result of that. For example, Hebrews 10, 26 through 39, I'll go down to kind of a concluding statement to the believers, to the Hebrew believers. It says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Second Thessalonians, or excuse me, Second Timothy four seven to eight. He says, "I one of my favorite passages. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness." Now, theologians, 
This is not, I'll answer, ask and answer the question, this is not imputed righteousness. What is imputed righteousness? You know this language? Imputed righteousness is that work that God does in declaring us righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness that's imputed to us, put to our account, justification by faith. When we come to faith in Christ, imputed righteousness, that's not what he's talking about here. We're not receiving, we do not receive our imputed righteousness till the end, like hold your breath, (laughs) but in Christ at the moment of conversion. This is the result of righteous deeds, rightness. What I do that's right before God is noted and rewarded. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Does every believer love his appearing? Well, what's this mean, love his appearing? It doesn't mean that you feel real warm about, oh, that's such a good thought. I love his appearing. Does that count? You don't get points for just that. It's obedience. It's living accordingly. If you love his appearing, then you're getting your house in order. You're getting your mind right. You're getting all about you living in such a way that you really believe that Christ is coming back. And that has, that has shaped the contours created in your, in your life. So reward. So, it's God's desire, it's God's desire to give to those who have had faithful service to him that when Christ returns, there will be rewards. This is a huge subject in the New Testament. But I will tell you this, after a lot of years of looking through a lot of theology books, I find that this really kind of gets the short end of the stick. It's a little odd. Now, I'm not, I know why, but that's for another discussion. But rewards, big, very important, very important. All right, that's the first step. I'm opening an envelope. Second thing is I want to deal with verse 7, which I would take it as getting right as our step into the letter. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. While there is debate among interpreters, is this a pastor? Is the pastor the angel? Wow, that's kind of flattering. Angel Justin. Uh, <laughs> it's angelos is the word, so some have taken it to be the pastor. There's a good argument, and I'm inclined to the fact that an angel, angels assigned to local assemblies. And there are other factors with in angelology that I think lends weight to that, where angels have a very personal and direct involvement in the lives of God's people and in the invisible warfare and what uh, angels, they like to listen to truth. And they're amazed at the work of First Peter chapter 1. And they are just, they're just dazzled by what God does in his grace in saving people. And, that, and all of that good stuff. So to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. He who is holy, who is true. And who has the key of David. Pause right here in mid-sentence. That 
What have we said so far? When you look at these opening statements in each church, the opening lines, they are always set in such a way as to be appropriate to, significant in that they relate to the content of what follows. Or put in another way, it's a way of grasping or setting forth the characteristics of that particular church. Look, holy, that's his character. Deity, Jesus Christ. Now we're building something here. Deity? Deity? Uh, authority? Authority? I think so. And is true, genuine, reliable, is veracity. True. Who's true? This is true. Who has the key of David? Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, what's this all about? Really, this is um, not an original statement here, uh, in that it comes out of what may be, if you've not been reading Isaiah lately, kind of a, an obscure passage. In Isaiah 22. And it's in the midst of a section where Israel is being severely scolded, rebuked by God through the prophet for her spiritual uh, decline, her violation of the covenant, her uh, disobedience to God, her indifference and to the Lord's commandments, standards, and Jerusalem is going to come in for a severe chastening. And that chastening is going to come at the hands of Babylon. All right? Going on through that chapter, then he comes to mention a politician. Shebna. Shebna is an interesting person. He is used, I think, in that passage as sort of a poster guy for the state of Israel at that time. He's self-possessed. He's arrogant. You have the nation breaking down around him. His position, it says steward, I think is the word that's used. There's no place we can find where this office that he held was ordained directly in the Old Testament, but probably it came up during the time of Solomon, maybe like a secretary of state or prime minister. And Shebna though, was just a self, full of himself. You see in the passage where with all of the corruption, all of the the evil in Israel that needed attention, and he is, he has authority. And what's he really interested in? His tomb. He wants to leave a name for him. It's like a politician, you know, they want to leave their name on bridges and highways and buildings. And he wants to leave a name for himself, and he wants to have this grand tomb. And he's like, ugh, <laughs> what, a, what a guy. Uh, is that what we need? But then he goes on in the passage. I'm getting to the key of David. He goes on to replace him, God does, with Eliakim, who's his substitute and is just the contrast. Eliakim then is said to be the one who is who has the key of David, opens and no one can shut, 
Because he represents, as this high official in Israel, authority. Authority. And that authority is particip- means participation in the kingdom, as it was then, in the theocracy. But he comes something, becomes something of a type of Jesus Christ. Who is, who has the key of David? Now what's this key? I have one. Like this. And it says in Isaiah that he's on his shoulder. Has this key. If you can't see, I've got a key right on the end of it. Church key. And, uh, he then has the authority by virtue of having this key, authority over Israel. That's the whole idea of the key. And with that authority, with that delegated power, this then is taken by Christ as the way in which he's to be known. So with that, as with this, and I shamelessly call attention to the fact that it says re-elect Mayor Eric Dial. That's what that says on there. And <laughs> it happened. <laughs> okay. But there is this, the key. The key. Authority. Authority. And now come back, and here's the point that I wanted to make with all that. That the Lord of the church possesses majesty, authenticity, and authority. He is the true Messiah. He is Israel's Messiah. And the Lord of the church is the true Messiah. Interesting. He wears more than one hat, if you will. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, Israel's Messiah. I don't conflate those two. I have friends who do and want to make the Israel the church and the church Israel. No, but here's what he does. He is true to his word. He can be trusted to keep his promises. He will fulfill his promises of his coming again and the establishment of his kingdom. He is the true Messiah. And he has rule Over the messianic kingdom. And no one gets into the messianic kingdom. Apart from Messiah. Jesus Christ. And enjoys the benefits of that kingdom. Oh now that's another story. Going into the kingdom. With all of its possibilities. Oh our imaginations. The scriptures just tease us. With descriptions of the kingdom. And what it will be like in terms of uh, enjoyment, participation, linked to and related to rewards. So do we have that now? All right, those, I haven't even gotten into the letter, but that's, you see, the two issues here. Reward, so we can put it this way in the second case, here's the true Messiah. Jesus Christ, as head of the church, is the authority over the church. And one day, will rule In his earthly kingdom. He alone opens up the kingdom. To men and women. So that they may enter. You don't get into the kingdom. Without Christ's permission. He's got the key. That's the point. He's the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the father but by him. And he's absolutely sovereign. Over opening and the closing of doors. Now we're ready. Let's I'll speed it up here. Let's consider verse 8. 
and what I think comes up out of it. Eighth verse. But do you have that? Is that clear? That's We're setting the stage for what follows. He does what he wills. He opens up the kingdom so that men may enter. By the way, that's not a foreign idea to you, is it? Doesn't it? Uh, um, two things come to mind. Revelation chapter 1. He has the keys over death and Hades. And he delegated to Peter the right to use the key to open up in the inaugural message on the day of Pentecost, the keys to the kingdom. So you see the linkage. Okay. All right, let's uh, look at verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. And now look at the next word. I'll give you a little little. Um, work in or encouragement to be observant in looking at when words pop up repetitiously. Look, see the word, it's behold. Then go down to verse 9. First word, behold, or translated see. And then in the middle of verse 9 says, a third time, behold or see, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet. See, see, see. Now, what's he say? He's not talking about the physical eye, but the mind's eye, the spiritual mind's eye, if you will. We do this. I've, through the years, I've been in a habit of saying in my prayers, Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law. You know, it takes the Spirit of God to turn the lights on, to be able to make connections, to see truth as it relates to the dark places in our hearts where the light needs to show up, and we say, oh, mm. Or it uh, is the work of seeing the connection of truths. Hermeneutic, uh, in hermeneutics, call this the analogy of faith, where you connect doctrines. We say connecting the dots, putting things together. So he's, what he's doing here then is that. See, see, in case you missed it, look, look, examine what? Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, what's all that all about? Let me give you the what I would put as the caption of the verse that Jesus, the, the church of Jesus Christ will be given admission to Christ's messianic kingdom. You're there. If you, if you are in Christ, you are a kingdom citizen. Which means adversity, persecution, ridicule, they don't define the future of the church. Now we talk about this a lot. We're naturally are sensitive to, should be, to the fact that the church is in the crosshairs of the evil one and that the world hated Christ is going to hate us. But we're not to get an inferiority complex from that, nor to get a martyr's complex from that. You know what I mean? That, oh, poor us. We are not to proceed as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, with a victim mentality. No, 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 no. We don't go there. That has all kinds of bad consequences. We're not victims. What he's saying is this, that he's the one who has final authority over everything who goes into the kingdom and who is duly rewarded he has all authority 
and limited earthly power doesn't define the future of Christ's church. I'm saying we people ought to be, as Christians, ought to be hopeful. We should live exhilarated with the prospect that there is this coming kingdom, Christ's root. He's got the keys. He's got the keys. He's got the final authority. Oh, the world likes to play its little imaginary games and thinks that they have the authority. Or that the human mind, rationalism, it's the final authority and so forth. No, it isn't. So what he's saying to this church, now go back to this little church. This is probably a church with not a whole lot of clout, not maybe very big. And so what he's saying is that he's the one who's got the authority to who goes into the kingdom. Not your, not politicians, not your locality. And that saints, God's people are under his control. And they need to see these truths because why? Things are going to be hard. And you have to have this, a grip on this. Now let me add one thing by way of, I think it's a, it's a bit of a interpretational issue, but let me try to go through it to it to conclusion quickly. This statement with regard to I'm opening and uh, before you an open door, no one can shut. That would seem to be closely connected with entrance into the kingdom. And Christ has the key. He's got it. But could it not also speak to us the fact that the Lord is the one who does open doors of opportunity, which become then the door into the kingdom? I don't think that's a stretch. Now, some just say that's exactly what he's saying here. That the Lord is sovereignly in control of opportunities for ministry in your life and in the church's life. And therefore, he will open up all of the opportunities that we need. Hey, I can give you the verses on this. This is not here. 1 Corinthians 16.9 For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2.12 Furthermore, when I come to Tro, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. And Colossians 4.3. Pray also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Opportunities. Can we have opportunities to spread the gospel? You know what we're really trying to do with Vision 2020? At least one aspect of it. You, you know what I mean? The Vision 2020. We've got the working groups. Is that, that's what we're called. Working groups. Not committees. It's words worn out. Um, they are really working groups. I've mentioned it before. This is a good thing. This is the, this is, it's good that we're doing this. Churches have to reinvent themselves. Churches, not just on a, the basis of trying to sell ourselves in a prettier way. No, is that we're always looking for ways to be more effective in penetrating our community and the wider community of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to be proactive in doing that. You've got to think. You just, I'll tell you what happens to churches. This is why churches often die. 
and they wither and their shelf life is so limited. You know why? Because you just get used to being one another. It kind of feels kind of, it's really comfortable. Wow, I get to see all my friends there. Okay, that's great. And so then after a while, you can kind of slide into um, uh, existing to exist. And we have to watch it. So we're doing a good thing. And if you're not on one of these work teams, pray for them. And it's not too late to get on board, but perhaps it could. But these are good things. I'm on the discipleship uh, work team. Uh, it's exciting. Um, there are about seven or eight there with uh, a lot of energy and thought. And, all right, I'm, I'm just saying that this, I think, is part of what it means to the Lord is sovereign over opening up doors. But we have to move out. We have to see where those doors are open. Let's pray about it. God, give us doors of opportunity. I know we live in an America now that's so much different than it was 50 years ago. People are suspicious. You can't get to homes as easily as you could. We used to get visit homes in the neighborhoods here in this area. And I would tell you, it's much easier than it would be now. They're locked. You don't see people. They're glued to their television. They're 48, 58-inch flat screeners. They've got computers and cell phones and and so many toys, and it can, well, you know. Uh, so we say, well, what do we do? Just give up? Lord, how can we get into apartments, apartment complexes, homes, lives for the gospel to attract people to the only way into your heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ? Uh, that ought to be the conclusion. But it's not. Okay. So let's go to verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. By the way, when he says little power, I failed to mention this, probably little power to produce results. You just don't, you're limited. Maybe a little influence. And purity of doctrine, that's not denied my name, that's, that's good. They've not compromised, thank the Lord. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Okay, this is being recorded, correct? I could be in trouble if this is taken by the, I, I, I don't think there are people, the media is not waiting with bated breath to what was said on Sunday night at Baraka Bible Church. But look at this statement. Is this anti-Semitism? Look at the statement. Jesus, the Jew of all the Jews, <laughs> the Messiah, he says this. What's he saying? I think it's this. That what has happened is that Satan was using that synagogue, which was vehemently opposed to the gospel, and to this church, this small church. Probably the synagogue had much more clout politically and economically, socially, than this little church did. So the, she was on the other foot, as it were, at that time. And so you had probably businessmen in the synagogue. You had uh, politicians, perhaps. But you had people of influence. They just had community-wide power and influence. And they were making life miserable for this little band of believers in the church in Philadelphia. 
you can imagine things that could have, it could have been ostracism of, or it could have been limiting the commercial or business opportunities for people who were for Christians, uh, and ridicule, attack, harassment, slander, you name it. But here the, the Lord says, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? He says, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, whether they want to or not. And you are part of that to know that I have loved you. So it's going to be flipped. It's going to be flipped big time. They will see and they will know then. So keep your heads up. Don't be down. And don't be look at yourselves as victims and we don't have much and so forth. But let me go to a conclusion on verse 9. I would say that by saying this in verse 9, Converted Israel, I got to put it that way, converted Israel will praise God for his grace to the church of Jesus Christ. For there will be, this is not just saying that all the Jews who've rejected Christ are the ones who bow the knee, but converted, you know, Romans 9, all Israel will be saved. At the return of Christ, they'll look on him whom they have more, whom they've pierced and they will mourn. And so there is going to be this titanic uh, change in the way in which Israel will look at her Messiah. Not now, but then, whenever then is. And all Israel, you know from Romans 9 that all Israel is not Israel, is it? You have to be circumcised in heart, converted Israel. National Israel will repent at the second coming of Christ. And at the return of Christ to the earth, all will acknowledge the grandeur of the sovereign purpose of God. Got it? All right, let's go to verse 10. Now, verse 10, there's some density. Well, there's density coming up right at the end of this. That's going to be a challenge. But hold on. Let's work through it. Verse verse 10. Let me read it with a comment or two. Because, he says, now the because, or it could be since, when he says that there's coming that time, they're going to bow down at your feet to know that I've loved you, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. What's that mean? That means this, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his journey to Golgotha, to the cross, he went through the road of what? Self-denial? And bearing his cross, the cross, the redemptive work of Christ. And he went through sacrifice. He made this great, this continual obedience that he exemplified and endured the cross. As Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, uh, that he endured the shame for the joy that was set before him. All right. That's the model. He's saying he's the model. Live accordingly. He's gone ahead. He's blazed the trail. Live this way. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't see yourself as a victim. No matter what crisis comes into your life for this. Then he goes further. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world. This word uh, translated whole world. Oikumenes. Where that ecumenical comes from. It means the 
11 times in Revelation, the unsaved world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, what do we have? I've got more here on this truck than I can unload right now. Because this verse, I want to look at it in two ways. First of all, I want to say this. I think, let me just give you the summary statement. The church will be kept from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. Now, question. What is this hour of trial and what does it mean to be kept from it? First of all, the hour, now, do you want the different views? Da 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 da. It would be useful, but I'm looking at my watch and I'll just tell you this much. Are you familiar with the language of pre-tribulationism and post-tribulationism? I hope you are. If I've done my job and Justin is doing his job, you ought to be conversant in that this is some of the, this is the linguistic coinage of God's people. Are you with me? Okay. Some of you are playing poker and you say, what in the world is post-tribulationism and pre-tribulationism? This. If you believe there is a kingdom to come on this earth over which Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years. That's premillennialism. And if you believe that prior to that kingdom period of a thousand years, there is what is known as the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, described in Matthew 24 and 25, and Revelation 6 through 19, I think that's significant. That time that's coming on the earth, that period of time then in relation to the believer is what? Or the believer in relation to the tribulation. A pre-tribulationist believes that Christ will come and take the church out of the world before the tribulation begins. Pre-tribulationism. Some of you read the books, the Left Behind series, you know that. Okay. That's pre-tribulationism. Believes that church is promised to be delivered from that hour. And says that when you look at this closely, you look at the text, the language he uses from the hour of testing, it's ek tes horas, out of that little preposition ek, ek, Pre-tribulationists say that if Paul had wanted to, excuse me, if Jesus had wanted to say through the tribulation, he could have used other prepositions, could have been used Greek prepositions in, ice, dia. I just get a little too technical for you. Don't just be calm. That there is the preposition ek, which is out, like not there to undergo the wrath of God. Which Paul describes the tribulation that way in First Thessalonians. We're, we're not going to experience the wrath of God. That's the pre-tribulation argument in a nutshell. There are other arguments that are used. The post-tribulationists would say that the church will go through the tribulation and would point to, oh, John seventeen fifteen, where you have the same kind of grammatical uh, construction, ek, with regard to the world, or in relation to Satan, that we're prayed that we will be protected from Satan. Now, does that mean while Satan 
we coexist with Satan as the God of this world, or as the post-tribulationist says, you're not taken out of the world. Eck, you are prayed for by Christ to deal with Satan as a roaring lion going about whom he may devour. So the argument goes. You with me on that? And so the post-tribulationists, now, see, there are problems that come with pre-tribulationism. There are. Whatever view you take, it's you're making it based on inferences. Because you're not going to. Now, the post, the closest that pre-tribulationists say you can come to a text that says the church is not going to go through the tribulation, it's right here in Revelation 3.10. That's this, this by many saying, this is the text. But post-tribulationists have their arguments and they come back with it. So I'm not here tonight with, that took me almost four minutes to do that. I'm not here to argue that out. I will say this, that I think that he is making this promise. And I understand the, 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 the challenge to that is saying, well, what about this Philadelphian church? They died. They didn't, they were delivered. They didn't have to go through it. The argument may be that did he just delay the tribulation for 2,000 years so that this church in Philadelphia wouldn't have to go through it? So there it goes. It goes back and forth like that. I think that they do become the church's representative of the wider circle of believers. Jesus does this in, in John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. And where I am, there you may be also. To whom did he say that? He said it to the apostles. Well, did they get raptured? I think that's, did they go in the second coming? Well, that's what that's about. So I think it is fair to use a representative group to teach the truth of, in this case, a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay? Now, I said, that was the first thing I want to say about this. But I want to make this clear. That what is the relationship of the believer to trials, difficulties? I mean, awful things. Awful things. Do I need to convince you that we are somehow, that we're Teflon coated, that we as Christians get some promise that we don't have to go through gruesome, awful, life-altering, miserable, chronic problems, pain, suffering. Is there anyone who really, you believe that? No. I, no. Peter says, don't be surprised at suffering. So I, I, I don't think I have to convince you of that. But I will tell you what. I think this is what's important here. Jesus is saying to this church, he has the keys. He has authority over all circumstances. He has authority over the saints. He has authority over all situations in life. He does. Nothing, nothing comes into our lives. No circumstance, no matter how complicated, painful and difficult, and seemingly contradictory to what we know about God. Seemingly, none of that is to be seen as out from under the infinite wisdom, loving wisdom of God for us. I'll just be quite frank with you on this, that I think this is kind of suffering 101. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not saying that there is an agony, pain, disorientation when something, you get a phone call and the person you love the most has just been killed in an automobile accident. I mean, this kind of thing, and it happens to you, 
Your loved one goes through some awful, awful thing. A child raped. I mean, I'm just thinking of worst case scenarios. Whoa, is that going to be unsettling and just stun you and put you in shock and deep grief? Sure. But I will tell you this. Here's where we got to get to fast. This is fundamental. That I would want to have the God give me the grace that no matter what comes, that I know that you love me. And that though I can't figure this out, and this is terrible. This is terrible. Maybe, you know, I've lost two or three loved ones this year. I've just been diagnosed with cancer. My children are climbing up Fool's Hill. And it all happened within a year. I'm just making it up, but it may not be made up. <laughs> that, Lord, I love you. And I'm, I, don't want to, I don't want to dishonor you. I want to go through this faithfully. I'm saying that because I'm building to my last two points, which I've got maybe four minutes to do. So, okay, are you still with me? All right, verse 11. Let's look at it, and I'll, let's, let's get it. Verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast, hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. The promise of the second coming of Christ is to be an incentive to remain resolute in serving Christ. Hold on. Hold on. Who's got the keys? Who's got the keys? Jesus has got the keys. He's got the keys. Hold on. Don't let anyone come along to take you off all out into bypass meadow. If I may use Pilgrim's Progress's language. Don't. And he says, hold fast to what do you have? What did the church in Philadelphia have? They had a little power. They had faithfulness of life, purity of doctrine, the hope of Christ's second coming. Hold on. Hold it. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. Don't be like that. Have you ever tried this when you ride the people mover on the, in, in Marta and at the airport? Or you can do it on Marta too. And so I like the one, the people mover at the airport. So you get on and you can't, everybody's got a bar taken or a, what you call it, a hand holder taken. So you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. You stand there. I've tried it. Say, I can handle it. And it's, it, boom, you know, you're falling all over people and you, you and so you know what holding on is. You gotta have something to hold on to. Hold on to the Lord. Lord, I'm holding on to you. I trust you. I love you. I want to please you. I don't want to go through this angry, complaining, using foul language, dropping out of church, getting at odds with people who disappoint me and just getting vengeful. No, Lord. No, 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 no. I want to love you and obey you through this. And so the Lord's coming. It's going to be sudden, unexpected. He's coming quickly. I think that means you live in a state of readiness. There's this unwavering obedience. Lest someone steal your crown. There's a crown to be stolen. Now, I have a little something I'll insert here briefly. That if everybody gets a crown, I have friends who believe that everybody gets a crown. I call that the participation trophy. Now, I'm not making fun of them. I know they've got their arguments. 
And they've got some, no matter what view you take, I'm, I'm nudging up to this overcomer's passage. That some say that all over, all believers are overcomers. Here, let me go and give you that point because I gotta get through and I wanna, believers are encouraged, verse 12, to be overcomers until their life on earth is finished. I think that's referring to believers who overcome. Not all believers overcome. I know, you say, First John, First John 5, 4 and 5, First John 4, 4, or First John 2. The point that John's making there is that, yes, we are overcomers in the blood of Christ and his redemptive work. And we've overcome in that our position is secure in Christ and we have this potential and also is given to us the necessity, but we have the means by which we can be overcomers through time. And ultimately, we will have overcome. You understand that concept? Very important one. And that we are to overcome. And there are rewards for those who overcome. So this is what I think that he is saying then. And I was about to say, if you think that everybody gets a crown, then, okay, what are you going to do with this? Don't let anybody steal your crown. I mean, lose your salvation? Now, some believe that. But I don't think so. That Okay, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go from it anymore. Now, this is, I said, this, the really dense part comes right here at the end. All right, here we go. I'm going to try to, I'm going to summarize and put it out as clearly as I can. I think that what he's saying is this. If you overcome which he's been saying all the way through these seven churches, up through the, the first five churches, that there are perks that come with overcoming. And these are things that describe your in my, the, the overcomer's enjoyment. For example, this pillar in the temple of my God. What does that mean? You're going to be, we're all going to be pieces of marble? Uh, no. He's using figurative language. But he's saying that you will have a prominent, how how does I put it, that special privileges will be given in Christ's kingdom. So it means then that there will be special places of service and honor, and you will become an integral part of the kingdom of God in ways in which others would not, who are not the overcomers they ought to be. Am I connecting here? We use this language in church. I've said this before. You say... Yes, I know him. He's a pillar in that church. Meaning what? Count on him, her, steady, strong, faithful, wise. Uh, just kind of, they are really got a, quite a lot of influence. And I, th- I think this is the idea. In the kingdom, there's, look, in, in Luke, Luke, is it 16, 16 through 19? Or is it, is it, no, Luke 19, you can check me out, but it's where the, the one, uh, one minor, what, the, the two minor, the five minor, um, and namely, how many cities do you want to rule over? Five? Would you like ten? Oh, you say it's so mercenary. Jesus said it, that it is the opportunity to bring glory for him in service in the kingdom in extraordinary ways. So, Lord, help me to be faithful. It will bring you greater honor and glory. And so then there is special intimacy. I think that's the significance of when he refers to this, the name of the city of God. So we're going to have a name, 
more than just name tags so that we'll know who we are. Haven't I seen you somewhere before? Oh, yes, looking at the name tag. No, 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 no. It's that there is going to be a recognition in the kingdom of those who have. Maybe there's going to be some, there'll be ways in which this will be seen and known. They have. I I don't have time for illustrations at this point. Other than to say this last one, he says, and this was the one that really, this really knocks my brain around. When he says, out of heaven for my God and my new name. Who's the my? That's Christ. He will identify himself with his people. And, you know, we don't get all that we can about the character of Christ, even though we pour over the Gospels and think about him and love him. We don't really fully get who Christ was in his incarnational work and now is the glorified, redeeming Savior. And that there is going to be something then that we'll see about Christ represents character. We'll see him in ways where, oh, oh. You know, there's a little bit of illustrate, a little bit of an illustration in this. You've been to a funeral that's really good. No, not all funerals are good. But I mean, and you sit there and you have this moment. It doesn't happen to ha- have to happen at a funeral, but it can be. And suddenly a life is just kind of spread out before you. And we don't usually do that. We don't come on Sundays and say, here, this is your life. No, but there are those moments. And you sit there and you think, wow. This person gives this testimony. This person gives this testimony. Well, I didn't know. He did that. She did that. She was this. He was that. I'm stunned at when you begin to kind of put things together. You have those moments. Oh, I will say on a greater, on a greater, in much greater way, is that when we get into the kingdom and and then on into the eternal kingdom, we'll be saying, I never thought of that. I didn't, I didn't realize it. That all that Christ was in the revelation of the Father in himself on earth and through eternity, I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. Let's not limit ourselves. We think our brains, we think we got it. No, we don't. No. All right. Well, I had a story I wanted to tell you from church history, but I'll have to squeeze that in somewhere else. I'll tell you what it's about. I'll just tease you with it. It's about somebody who I read about. I came a pastor friend of mine, found this story that has to do with a person who was considered feeble and small and insignificant who made a gargantuan impact in a way that I got to tell you. Thomas, anybody heard of Thomas Bilney? Thomas Bilney. This, we're going back to the late 1400s, early, early 1500s. He was a student at Cambridge University. He was just kind of an average wallflower kind of guy, small in stature, not saying this being small in statue makes you wallflower, but in that day and among those people at that time, he just. Could, but he had he had some real he had a keen mind, and he loved the writings of uh, Erasmus. 
Erasmus was the first to translate the, the Greek New Testament and to create that in a translation. And he wanted to, he loved the writings of Erasmus so much that he learned Koine Greek so that he could read this New Testament, the Koine Greek New Testament, all put together. And he mastered it so he could do it. And while he was doing it, he came upon, kind of like a Luther, Martin Luther experience, he came upon the truth of the gospel. And he got this, it was overwhelming. In other words, he became a believer. He just saw it. He was, I mean, you looking, he reading the Greek New Testament. And he said, you don't have to do that to be saved. But he just saw Christ and all his glory in the gospel. And he became a believer. Then he began to think, how can little old me, how can I have any kind of impact with my generation? And uh, I would, to talk to somebody who does have impact and influence. And you know, he thought of a man who was a very important, uh, uh, he was in the church, um, a bishop in the church. Name was Hugh Latimer. You ever heard the name Hugh Latimer? Well, you're about to. Um, Hugh Latimer was a papist. He was Church of England. This is late 1400s, early 15s. He was just uh, a Romanist, Roman Catholic to the core and went after these Protestants with a vengeance and and Billney asked to meet with him because Latimer did have a reputation for being honest and being a kind man. And he made an appointment to go and to bear witness to him. He wanted to give him his story of how he came to faith in Christ. Latimer listened to him. Latimer knew what it was to have longings that weren't met and to be troubled, and to be suffocated by the system of which he was a part. You know, works just don't, a work system just doesn't do it. And you know what? He was converted. (laughs) He was converted. Listening to this testimony from this Thomas Building, Latimer went on to become uh, one of the great lights of the English Reformation. He just flipped what he had been as a papist Romanist, he just became a firebrand for the grace of God, justification by faith alone. And he just, and he, actually both of these men ended up being burned at the stake for their faith. This was during that time when there were great struggles for the souls of men between the Roman church and the reformers. You know, don't write yourself off. Church shouldn't, small, we're feeble folk. God uses feeble folk in ways that we, he can just make those circles of influence go. I'll tell you, Hugh Latimer had a lot to do with your, you, my being here tonight. He did. Lord, thank you. Your grace and mercy to us. Oh, Lord, our minds are full. Lord, I pray, though, that you will just enable us by your Holy Spirit to bring us down to a renewed, renewed love for you, to be faithful, 
to serve you well and not deny your name and to hold fast. Hold fast. So help us in Christ's name. Amen.